Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, our tentpoles focus only on small excerpts from several pieces of media, The Expanse, Naomi Novik's His Majesty's Dragon, an Alexander the Great documentary, K.J. Parker's Devices and Desires, and Bujold's The Warrior's Apprentice. Hello, and welcome to episode 64, The Art of War. I'm Alex, and I'm the Siege of Tyre. I'm Freya, and I'm the Great Emu War. I'm Macy, and I am the Battle of Britain. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're having a little bit of a craft episode to talk about uh, epic battles in science fiction and fantasy. We have some really fun, cool uh, tent poles that are going to be a little bit more interactive than usual, I think. Uh, but before we get into all that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I have finally gotten off my ass and read all of the other Murderbot novellas after the first <laughs> one because the book, the Murderbot no- novel, has come out, which I have on order with my bookshop. So I read three Murderbot novellas in a row, which was absolutely <laughs> delightful. If you haven't gotten onto this story of a sec, secu, what are they called? Sec unit, a security unit who just wants to be left alone to watch its dramas and is very annoyed that it keeps having to interact with people who it then has feelings about, <laughs> then you should get onto those. I also read in just a huge mood all just, around. Yeah, really. just one of the most relatable characters. Yeah. I also read Riot Baby by Toshi Onyabushi, which is another Tor.com novella, uh, which is very topical given mm. the Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality that are happening at the moment in the US and around the world. Uh, this is a very angry book. It's fantastically written. It's just sharp and vicious and really, really recommend it. And I have unfortunately started a reread of the Lyman Chronicles by Dorothy Dunnett and have created a hashtag about it. And when you say I have started, Freya, what you really mean is I have started accidentally instigated an international movement. Yes. There it is. That is is. what I have done. I was being modest about it. I have dragged into the pit with me many, many people on Twitter, (laughs) some of whom have read the books before, some of whom have not. Welcome. You're going to hate it. It's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> All there are sheep. That's there as far are, as I've The first book does have quite a lot of livestock incidents. I have to admit, <laughs> it opens with a pig incident. Yep. There's a yes. pony incident. There is then a cattle and sheep incident. Lots of livestock. It is set in Scotland in the in the 1500s. So there's not a whole lot of other incidents <laughs> going on. Sometimes uh, they have rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I started yesterday and I'm like 200 pages into the first book already. So (laughs) clearly we're all doomed. (sighs) How are you probably further through in reading it in one day than I am in two months of listening to the audiobook? Well, this is my third Because she's read read it before. Yeah, the first time I read this, I was very slow because I had to keep stopping, opening Wikipedia... Trying to work out if these people Finding were Finding out what the fuck. <laughs> or were yeah. they made up? What was actually happening in terms of English, French, and Scottish political relations at the time? What is Lyman saying at any given moment? So, but it's the Stuarts. Don't you know the Stuarts? No. No. Macy. Remember, I'm the person who never studied any history ever. We're the filthy colonists, Macy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Like, in Australia, if you do history, you mostly get UK history because... Yeah. You know, colonialism. But yep. I just yep. didn't study history. So it has been a little bit of a steeper learning curve for me. But yes, on this, my third read through, I now know enough about what is happening, who everyone <laughs> is, and also a lot of the secrets that are going to come out later in the book so I can actually read it and appreciate it instead of reading it and going, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, the entire time. Anyway. And you're catching all the gay bits now, too. That's true. I have more time to notice the gay bits. Macy. That's- what are you reading? Quite a lot. There's a twink. He collects a twink. Anyway, Macy has been reading. I was lucky enough to get my grubby little mitts on an arc of Catherine Addison's next book, uh, which is called Ooh. The Angel of the Crows, and is, as the back flap of the book says, Sherlock Wingfic. Okay. Wonderful. It's, we love to see it. It's a whole book of BBC Sherlock is an angel. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and great. it's great. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, it's been adapted somewhat more than that since, but that was its its origins, which the author says in the cover copy. So that was really fun to see. Um, and it's a little bit more serial than many novels are because it does kind of follow the episode structure a little bit. But mm-hmm. really love the world building. Great world building. And then I went and read Tasha Suri's Empire of Sand, which was so good and spooky and desertful and had an amazing marriage of inconvenience plot, which I now wish to eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want the next book in my hands and I can't just walk to my bookshop and get it, which is rude. Tasha is great. Indeed. That's all my thoughts. <laughs> I was just waiting for that thought to end. That was the entire thought. I agree. That was the whole thought. Tasha is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also one last thing I read was a series of Witcher fanfics to the total of about 150,000 words called The Accidental Warlord and His Pack, which mm. is about a Geralt has accidentally conquered much of the world with a bunch of his witcher buddies because he went back to his witcher buddies after seeing how evil a lot of the kings were and was like we hunt monsters right and the witches are like right what about when the monsters are people and then they conquered the world cool uh and yes it is um jaskier being court bard and political advisor to monarch geralt and it's great Excellent. That is my shit. Yeah, you will deeply love it. It has a lot of Jaskier. I cannot pronounce his name. Jaskier. Jaskier. It has a lot of him, like, accidentally stopping in the middle of sex to compose songs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love him. <laughs> He's valid. Oh, he is valid. He's very valid. Um, I, right now, am in the middle of two books. Of course, for Freya's Lymond Reading Book Club, uh, which I, too, got dragged into, I'm reading book two, uh, which is Queen's Play. I'm only a little bit into it so far. We have arrived at the French court. Uh, Lymond is running around being in disguise, as is his want. Yeah, that's and, just his thing. Um, <laughs> jumping, like, climbing over ships that are being attacked by pirates and so forth and this is like chapter one uh, obviously uh damn it, yeah so, damn it francis uh the hashtag by the way dear listeners if you want to follow along uh is hashtag damn it francis um <laughs> which is the attitude of the reader and also every which, character yes. in the book that is not francis <laughs> correct and sometimes francis correct. himself that's, that's yes, true. true. Francis is like Francis, no. And then is also Francis, Francis yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I am also reading a novella uh, by C.S.E. Cooney, Desdemona and the Deep, which is beautiful. I'm only partway into it so far, but um, Claire Cooney is so, so good at language and, and prose. I think she started out as a poet and that really, really comes through in in her writing. Um, it is kind of a 1920s kind of feel, but in a fantasy world. And there's um, the Cobalt King and uh, the exiled Queen of the Fairies as well. And uh, it's good shit. Macy, I think that you specifically would enjoy this if you haven't read this already. I have not. You have not. Have it's not. your shit, I think. Yee. I mean, at least you like fairies. It doesn't have too much plant stuff in it yet, but I it don't has require like require plant stuff. Okay, oh, you don't require, I don't require it. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll keep an eye out for any other plant stuff. But yeah, it's it's just a really beautiful, um, beautiful book so far. Like the images are super super clear. Mm. So yeah, awesome. gorgeous stuff. Um, shall we have an episode? Macy, I think that you have a announcement. I do have a little announcement, which is that I have a reprint story up with Glittership, um, and it is full of flying pirate lesbians, which is kind of my jam. Yep, that yep. is a Venn diagram yep. that we like <laughs> to see. And it does have a fight scene in it, a battle scene in which pirates are trying to take down an airship from a giant flying bird thing. Oh, is this Feather Witches? Yes. 
Ah, oh, Feather Witches. Feather Good Witches. Choice. It's called Thou Shalt Be Free as Mountain Winds, and we will link it in the notes. Excellent. Wonderful. And also, I read the audio version, which may or may not be up yet, so you get more of my voice. It's, yeah, people will get to hear your voice for the very first time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shelly, it's very hot where I am today, so I'm a little bit lazy feeling. Shall we have an episode? Let's, because we have so many notes. So many notes. Uh, Macy, let's start off with you then. What are battles for in fi- fiction? You were the one who wanted to have this discussion, so you I was, out. but Freya had an answer. Oh, okay. Well then, Freya. This is what I get for putting in dot points and then assigning my name <laughs> to them. Yes, it <laughs> yes. is. Yes. <laughs> this is your punishment. Well, at the tail end of reading slash watching all of the temp polls for this week, I was feeling a little bit impatient with... <laughs> battles in general (laughs) and i wrote that battles are the inevitable culmination of rising action when there is a genre expectation of political level stakes so they're orgasms thank you macy yes battles are (laughs) orgasms episode (laughs) over let's go home (laughs) oh if you think i'm not going to take that and run with it later in the episode (laughs) oh please take it wherever you want I mean, that kind of tracks, though, because like you, the way that you write a fight scene is very similar to the way that you write a sex is, scene, yeah. because they're both action scenes that should do more than just depict the action. It should um And advance. stabbing isn't the only way to finish it. Stabbing isn't the only way to finish it. Thank you, Macy. <sighs> I'm surrounded by far too many lesbians. Dragging us slightly back to the <laughs> please, origins please, Freya. of the metaphor. <laughs> My point was that there is in fantasy and also in some science fiction an expectation that is deeply rooted in the history of the genre of Mm -hmm. epic fantasy that at some point there is going to be a battle. And if you're doing battles throughout your book or your series, they are going to get larger, the stakes will get higher, the danger to your good guys or your protagonists is going to get greater. And this is why you end up with these giant battle scenes, the last battle, the final battle, the oh. final stand involving more and more and more and more armies and of Game the dark, of whatever. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, yep. many, many Fucking epic fantasy series because there is an expectation that the stakes will continue to rise, that you're not going to have your biggest and most important and bloody battle in the middle of your series and then have the climax of the series be something else. I think if you've set yourself up as a series working within a genre that does this, there is a genre expectation that things just keep getting bigger. So I'll say Mm. another thing for me that battles really provide to you which i kind of saw throughout reading these tent poles and watching these tent poles is they ratchet up the stakes um a reader is going to be deeply annoyed with you if you just have a member of the party randomly die when they're walking down the street even though that's plausible for like living in the world unless you have a reason like it's harder to sell but if you're in the middle of a siege and an arrow falls from the walls, there's a real danger for your life there. We expect mortal peril in battle. Then it also provides Mm. opportunity for characters to take rash or Mm. brave or self-sacrificial actions that might then end in their death or injury, or at least show them to be a certain type of person. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And it shows them to advantage as well, as we'll see when we talk about Temeraire, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're, especially if you are going to be following one person quite closely Mm. in an epic battle scene then it can tell you a lot about the person you are choosing to follow when it comes to the actions they're taking based on the situation that they're in yes so i think that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about this episode what we did this week darling listeners was actually do a focused read or watch in one case um, of the only the battle scenes in several different pieces. So we're going to run through slightly more tent poles than usual, a little bit quicker. So yep, I believe yep. that Freya is up first. Yes, yes I am. So yes, as, as Macy said, we, we are being quite selective as to the bits of these tent poles, <laughs> and we're going to sort of use them as a bouncing off point to talk about craft. Yes. And if you want to write battles, or even just fight scenes, some of these aren't enormously big battles, but all of them fall slightly under the heading of something that is larger than just one-on-one yes. battle, then how can you use some of the lessons from these temples to make that effective? So our mm. first one is The Warrior's Apprentice 
by Lois McMaster Bujold. This is one of the Volkosigan saga. This is the first of the Volkosigan saga to focus on Miles Volkosigan. And it is the story of 17-year-old Miles having dramatically crashed out of the entrance examination for the military academy, accidentally, question mark, finding himself on the other side of the galaxy becoming the admiral of a mercenary fleet. (laughs) It is an absolutely delightful adventure novel. I love it. The parts we are talking about are a little bit of chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 14. And in these, Miles is in the first one taking a station, a space station that is, is it, it's just sort of hovering around a planet, but we mining don't mining or the, something, right? They're mining. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got something to do with mining. It's not, it's not that important, honestly. <laughs> um, he is taking this station, which is being held by a large legitimate mercenary fleet <laughs> with himself and maybe four other people. Like he's got very, very few people on his side at this people, point. Yeah. Yeah. And he is taking a station. And then in chapter 14, there is another scene in which he then has to defend that station against another force. They are excellent, I think, as character notes. Mm. Because what this book is about is about Miles growing into command and -hmm. discovering that as a very rash, fast-thinking, disaster 17-year-old, he has a certain skill set for leadership and personnel that he only knows about because he just talks, 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 gets himself into huge trouble and then just has to somehow think his way out of it. This is and not this... so much uh, Zanatos speed chess as it is falling and failing to hit the ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, God, I love him. So what were some aspects of, so of these scenes that you guys thought were interesting or noteworthy? I really liked the way that Miles was so quick thinking to make use of unexpected resources, which is, I think, something that you see quite commonly in fiction, in fictional battles, is people improvising or trying a brand new tactic. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the way that in the first battle, he learns that you can take control of your soldiers' um army armor essentially to bring like to bring them back if they're injured and he immediately thinks does any of the enemy have this feature turned on and then proceeds to prank the enemy into losing the battle let's just do a little hack as a treat yes (laughs) let's just make (laughs) this one soldier's like catheter bag backfire at him he'll be a little distracted (laughs) now (laughs) yeah Oh, uh, I love yeah, it. just like just it's a lot of small ways of like lots of small pieces of sabotage rather than like one giant genius command decision. Except everyone around him is like, "This is brilliant. We would never have thought of this." I liked about that particular scene is that it shows the journey that Miles goes through in the book in miniature. Mm. It mm-hmm. continually ups the steps that he has to take and how deadly those are. So we begin with somebody's urinary catheter, you know, being emptied into their suit, which is very distracting, but not at all dangerous. And then we have somebody's head being locked in a particular position, which is uncomfortable. It means they can't fight. But near the end of that, he then has to dump all of somebody's like med kit drugs yeah. yep. into their circulation at once to try and save somebody else's life. Yep. And it is, yeah, a microcosm of him through the book discovering that he has to do more and more drastic things and he is going to kill people through his own actions yeah. and how is he going to cope with that? And I think from a craft perspective, um, framing battle this way uh, through, you know, the turning point kind of ideas of an individual, particularly when that individual is your viewpoint character, is a mm-hmm. really effective way to make it fit the shape of story. As opposed to some of the stuff that we saw, for example, in the Alexander documentary we'll talk about a bit later, where a lot of battles you win by just, like, bumping into the other dude a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, who can bump for longer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very true. Uh, As a corollary to... It's boring in a craft thing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, As a corollary to the how Miles uses resources, the thing that I really like is how Miles deals with um obstacles Mm. and you see this in the very first scene of the of the book right where he has to run this obstacle course as part of the the training academy or the military academy thing and that's where he flunks out because he's not physically fit to do it 
Um, he's rather severely disabled. Um, but just because of the way he's grown up, he's always had to look at an obstacle and say to himself, okay, here's a problem. How do I deal with it? And then deal with it. Right. Um, and so... I forget if it's in this chapter. I read a good chunk of this book yeah. instead of just the prescribed two chapters. Um, yeah, I read the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the scene the scene where they get the big stack of money and they're like, yay, now we're going to be able to pay our mercenaries. And it turns out that it's basically worthless cash that they might as well just use as pretty toilet paper for all the, the value that it has. Um, and he's sitting here going like, fuck, what do, fuck, what do I do? about this problem um, and someone else might like throw up their hands in frustration or find a brute force way of dealing with it but Miles just sort of like sits there and stares at the money until something occurs to him mm. and the Volkosigan books like the entire society that Miles comes from this Barayaran society is so military focused mm. Mm. and for a series of novels that are science, military science fiction in many ways most of it is about Miles using non-militaristic solutions and showing the ways in which, yes, because of his disability and because of how he was brought up, he doesn't quite fit in the role that he's thinks he should play. Yeah, Miles is, is a much better saboteur. About that. My, Miles is a much better saboteur class than he is an infantry officer. Yeah. Mm. But I don't but think it, shows... it would occur to him. Mm. But it shows how character can intersect with battles, can intersect with Absolutely. world building. Yes. Because if you if you are choosing to write about battles, are you writing about a world in which those are an expected mm. and honourable part of life? Are they something that happens very seldom and are always thought of as horrific? I mean, it makes me think a little bit of Sam Hawke's first book, um, title, title, Freya. City of, uh, City of Lies. City of Lies. I'm just like the Poison Wars. Um, yep. Because there's a siege and nobody expected there to be a siege. And so there just aren't really the soldiers. Um, and so that's a very effective way to kind of show the world building, that what they were mm. or weren't expecting to happen. They think of themselves as civilized pacifists. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so they suddenly are... they are besieged. And fuck, I guess the baker has to learn how to throw rocks off a wall now. Yeah. What are you going to do? And that's... That's a really good way of building character, right? Is like showing how people deal with obstacles mm. and like how they deal with problems when they're confronted with them. But let's keep going a little bit because I do yeah. know we have a lot to get through and talk about our yes, next yes. space battle tentpole. Yes. Um, yes. And this was your nomination, it was, was it not, yes. Macy? So the TV show The Expanse has a lot of space battles and space hardships and accidents, um, we chose to pull up the fourth episode of the first season, which is the one where a Martian warship, the Donager, which has just captured our main characters, gets attacked by some mysterious, very effective smaller ships. And it doesn't know who they are or what they want, and it is completely uh, taken aback by their weaponry, which is way more advanced than they expected. So how did you guys enjoy this? I really liked this. I had not seen any of The Expanse. It's one of those things that someone had mentioned to me a long time ago that you might like this. Mm. I certainly loved the Lady Martian Commander. Yes! She was great. She's very cool. She was so good. Mm. She was so noble. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. But this was a really good... Um, hang on. This was a very good example of a battle being used for a specific storytelling purpose, mm -hmm. which is revealing a little bit more of a mysterious enemy because mm. this is very early in the story yes this is as you said episode four and so the point of this battle was there is a mysterious enemy that is more powerful than anything we've come across before and it was also let's put our heroes in more danger yeah let's force them to make some decisions to do with character and let's move the story along so as an episode yeah. this worked beautifully as a as a piece of craft as a piece of storytelling and i thought that the battle was a perfect frame for all mm. of those things. And I think it also really worked in terms of how it was building character within the context of this life-threatening situation that they're in. Because we don't know the lady Martian commander for very long, but by the time that she pushes the button to self-destruct her ship so that these mysterious enemies won't be able to take the ship, um, 
we kind of admire her and we're like, yeah. oh my God, like you're making a genuine sacrifice and it's fucking killing you to, I mean, it's like emotionally killing you and it's literally killing you. But like it um, hurts us, even though we've only known her for, I don't think she was in much more than a little bit of the previous episode either. No, I I think I, I saw about half of the first season and I remember like, I think we just briefly meet her in episode three yeah. and then like, this is where so she mostly an is and then she's her. dead. And But, yeah. but we yeah. care. We care about her and we we feel what she's feeling. Um, and so a battle is a, a great way to figure out what a character is willing to do and how far they're willing to go because it's pushing them to that very absolute limit. Yeah, it kind of, of burns that. them down to their core, right? Yes, yes. Mm. And you see that with Holden as well where he's saying, you know, I will run away and put my life at risk rather than leave my crew behind. yes. Mm. And one thing I quite liked that was explored in this episode is the terror of passivity in a battle, which mm. is something that I will again mention my favorite book series of all time, Regeneration by mm. Pat Barker, which is mm-hmm. about World War One, has a very telling quote, which I think of often, about how the thing that breaks down spirits and causes people to just crumble is not charging into battle with a gun in their hand, shooting at people, it is being stuck with someone yeah. shelling you yeah. with you can do nothing it is mm. the, the passivity in the face of violence yes and given that this was taking place on a large ship that is under attack we see the main characters who are prisoners stuck yep. in this hold and for a while they can't do anything and so yeah. it is really you get this great sense of relief when yes yeah, something bad happens there's a hole shot through their cell one of the members dies and then Quickly, they have to do something yes. to mm-hmm. reseal the cell so that they don't die a vacuum. And suddenly the action starts up again because you'd have this sense of dread right. of, you know, being stuck with something yeah. happening on yeah. the outside and you don't know what it is. Yeah, and you had, it was very effective because they have one character who is a Martian and knows those ships who's sitting there like interpreting what the change in the lights and like the weird noises. He's like, oh, we've gone to battle mode. Oh, that's mm. the railgun charging. And everyone's like, the fuck? <laughs> how, how do you know these things? <laughs> yep. Uh, and mentioning the vacuum, I think one of the things that I really liked about um, what this episode did, or what this space battle did was that it remembered the fact that in a battle in space, there's three enemies or rather there's three there's two enemies and you, the protagonist, right? <laughs> so one of your enemies is the other people that you're fighting. And the the second enemy is the environment. Because, like, if the space gets in, then you die. Yeah. Like, if, if you interact with the environment outside, you're just dead. And so that's that's a huge thing to be fighting against. And in in any space battle, the person who gets exposed to the environment first loses. Um, so it's an interesting kind of siege when you think about well, it. Well, I mean, by, I've long thought that um, space opera and anything using spaceships uh, pulls a lot from tall ship battles, yeah. right? Oh, Which yeah. is the analogous thing here where um, the majority of the sailors on a tall ship can't swim. And even if they yeah. could swim, if you're out in the middle of the ocean, it doesn't fucking matter if you can swim for 20 minutes or an hour. Like if you fall over, you're dead. If yeah. you end up in the environment, you're dead. Um, if yeah. your ride catches fire, you're dead. Not because you'll run out of oxygen, as you might on a spaceship, but because mm. your ship is on fire, and soon you yeah. will be too. <laughs> yes, yeah. and maybe there discouraged. are some lifeboats, but they don't guarantee great yeah, but like a warship, safety. A warship, you don't want to be on a in a lifeboat in the middle of a. I mean, Black Sails has some amazing battles in it mm. do you remember Freya there's there's one where they heal over some of the ships on the beach in order to fire like uh, they, they are they make a line of the pirate ships in water that is too shallow in order to tip the ships over so they can fire their guns at the English who are coming at them that's amazing. It's amazing. It's Black Sails has some amazing battles. As does um, the Master and Commander movie. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, Far Side of the World. Yes, yes. That has got incredibly good 
And I, what, I think what I like about that kind of thing and what a movie and a TV show can do that is harder in a book mm-hmm. is give you both big picture and small fi- yes. picture very quickly. Yes. So you can mm-hmm. see close up on these people stuck in this cell. Here are the dilemmas. Here are the conversations they're happening. Here is this very small scale human dread. Yep. And now we go, the next shot is here are three different space stations <laughs> arranged and here's how they're shooting at each other. And pew, so. Pew! Pew, 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 pew. Uh, And then, you know, here is a shot of the bridge. And here is, you know, some people running and shooting. And so you can get every possible viewpoint Mm -hmm. in succession. Well, let's talk then a little bit about the next tentpole, because I think that it tries to do that with lots of multiple points of view. Yes, true. So uh, the next tentpole is chapter 22 of Devices and Desires by K.J. Parker. Uh, I love K.J. Parker. And this, I think, is one of the moments in which he really, really shines. Um, Devices and Desires is about a... So it's kind of a medieval fantasy uh, with no magic. And there is a an empire which has kind of gotten to industrialization. Uh, And they have invented interchangeable parts and so forth. And this engineer runs away to a more medieval mud town. And he invents, or rather builds, Da Vinci-esque war machines for them. Like these giant fucking crossbows. uh, Mechanized crossbows. So that when the Empire comes to conquer them, they can just shoot their own crossbows back at at the Empire and not get conquered. Uh, And this this chapter is where they are um, being attacked, finally, by, by the Empire. Uh, and so these giant fucking crossbow things called scorpions, um, they're set up on the walls and it takes a certain amount of time to wind them. And because the Empire invented these things, they know exactly how long it takes to wind them. So they send in a wall of, of troops. All of those troops get dead immediately. They send in another wall during what they think is going to be the interim, the winding time. Um, and if c- they can just get past that, then they can get to the walls and kill everybody. Um, but what they don't know is that the engineer has made improvements and the second wave gets dead and it goes on thusly. I don't want to get it too much in detail, but well, yes, that, Freya. that I think was probably my favorite thing of that entire scene, that one, that moment where yeah. somebody who is inside the siege, who you would think would be like, yes, more death for the people outside, sees the second wave marching in in what they think is the winding time and then sees them get mowed down. And he has this visceral horror response of that is almost an abomination, even though it is technically good for his side, because yeah. you can tell that the society is one where warfare has these set rules and rhythms and yeah. almost an honor code. And it's it's more it's of a not... medieval it's more of a medieval style of fighting where like when you go into battle and you kill someone, you are personally killing in another individual on the end of your sword. And this is the beginning of really impersonalized, more distant um, fighting. And like, it does seem abominable the first time that you see that. Yeah, I completely well, I agree. It was even like, because I, I haven't read the whole book, I didn't even get that from the context. It seemed that they're quite used to war machines. Yes. It's just that somebody had changed a rule and that was mm. somehow dishonorable. And it actually reminded me in an odd way of some of the satire of the military that Terry Pratchett does in <laughs> Jingo, where yeah. Vimes, a policeman, is un- is forced into a military situation that he doesn't want to be in, and he has to deal with military officers oh, who think that there are rules of warfare, <laughs> and these are how the rules work, and you can't make war except by these rules, and that makes it okay. As long as everybody yeah. is adhering to this code, then that makes this horrific thing that we're doing somehow honourable. So- and- I could see a bit of that in this. So in high school, I accidentally did half a GCSE of religious studies um, by going to what I thought was a lunch discussion club on morality. Um, Of course you did, (laughs) Macy. (laughs) Macy's misspent youth. (laughs) Macy's misspent youth. But let's talk a little bit about um, St. Augustine's concept of just war. Sure. Okay. Uh, are you either of you familiar with this? No. Nope. <laughs> okay. So for the longest time, um, you could only go to the you could only go to war if the Pope said it was okay, right? Um, and there were certain conditions that had to be met. You had to be defending something or defending someone, and there were certain like things that you couldn't do. It's basically like the medieval Christian-backed Geneva Convention. Um, okay. And 
it didn't really matter because if the Pope liked you, then anything was just war. And if the Pope didn't like you, then nothing was just just war, right? Uh, and that's kind of, I got so annoyed reading this book where the engineer was talking about like this exact number is how many will be killed. And if you do this, then that will happen. I'm just like, you, sir, worship at the altar of determinism and I hope you never build a bridge. <laughs> yeah. But that's not right. how numbers work. But you're right in the motive for this particular war, like even reading it out of context, the motive for it wasn't, it was irrelevant. You're just like, okay, it's a siege. This side yep. wants to get, take over this city. This is how they're choosing to do it. And even in the Expanse episode, like it, the focus of course, because it was so based on character, why mm. were these people attacking the Martian ship? Who knows? Who cares? That wasn't actually relevant to the microcosm that was being told at that point. Right. One mm. assumes it will right. become important to the political picture later on. Maybe that's something to talk about a little bit, maybe later, but I think that one of the things that a battle does in a piece of fiction is it makes everything very immediate and urgent, right? Mm. You, in the middle of a battle, you are not thinking about the political ramifications on Napoleon's campaigns overall, right? You're trying right. to stab the dude who's stabbing your dragon. True. Um, but interesting, thinking about just war... I think if you're going to write battle scenes, this is why epic fantasy lends itself to them, because the modern day conception of war is no longer of something that is glorious. Mm. You know, I think there is well... at least, okay, depends on who you're talking to. But I would say within <laughs> many societies now, there is an acknowledgement that war is in many cases something that is horrible and you know should be avoided if possible. And so if you are, mm. if you want to write battle scenes, you see it more in the genres where the opponent is trying to take over the world or they want to get their mm -hmm. hands on this thing that will give them ultimate power. You know, they are so evil mm. that the violence of warfare is justified because anything would be justified in trying to stop this person. Or they hit first. Yes, or it is a self-defense I self think we see in war. a lot of these. So like Alex was saying with Devices and Desires, I want to defend my city from an empire that wants to conquer me. That's always a justifiable motive, right? That uh, most mm -hmm. readers will say, you are right, fight on, mm. buddy. Yeah. But we um, did see the point of view of somebody who was on the other side of the battle mm. in this. And again, I can't speak to the context of the wider book, but that is something I think you don't always see right. in fictional battles. I think, again, in movies and TV shows, you might see it more because of that sense of scope, but you're not expected to necessarily sympathize with people on both sides. Right. And the way this, these characters were presented as both, you know, having understandable emotions and rational thoughts and as interesting slash sympathetic people, you got a sense of, well, who am I meant, am I, am I meant to be cheering on one side or another in this battle? Yeah, I think it did a good job of making the whole thing feel at least somewhat senseless, which mm. I think was his goal. Um, yes, I would agree. Not his only goal necessarily, but certainly one of them. It was a very tightly focused and like disgustingly visceral um, mm. piece of battle writing. Mm. And yeah. because we weren't being yeah. presented with one side is right. Yeah. You, you couldn't glory in it. Exactly. Yep. Right. And KJ Parker really like does his best work with like the nitty gritty tiny details. I think that that's really what makes his writing come to life for me. Yeah. Okay, I think we should probably keep going fairly swiftly as we're running short on yep. time and we have so many dots. Tell us about some dragons, Macy. Dragons. So, um, I don't know if any of you out there have heard of this book. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the book that in the UK is called Temeraire and in the US is called His Majesty's Dragon. <laughs> Who wrote this? By Naomi Novik. Of course. Of course. Of course. Um, we're going to talk specifically about the last battle in this book in which a fleet isn't the right word. Flock isn't the right word either. Uh, in which a group of Napoleon's yeah, I'm not quite sure dragons, what they describe them as. They're a squadron, kind of. Yes, yeah, sure, squadron, sure. the core. In which a, That's the whole thing. In which a large number of French dragons are carrying massive troop transports across the channel and if they land it will be the end of the war and britain will be conquered by napoleon 
And so our hero has to go into battle against overwhelming odds for his first big fight on a dragon and uh, chaos ensues. Yes, yes. And obviously the Temeraire books very much are in the tradition of tall ships and the Patrick Mm -hmm. O'Brien Napoleonic War series because a dragon in this series is a tall ship. There is a captain, there are officers, there are people with various roles whose job it is to swarm across the dragon and either to repel boarders or to board other dragons or (laughs) to make sure that everybody stays on the dragon which is a little bit more yeah. of a, a difficult feat than keeping everybody on a boat. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, it's this again. It's the, uh, if you are exposed to the environment, you die. Yeah. Yep. yeah. If you fall yep. off your dragon, you're pretty much doomed. Yes. You go splash, even if you're not over the sea. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> or you go splat, even if you're on the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, this is not advised. Well, this battle, I want to I want to point out something in comparison to the battle mm. that's in the Expanse episode, uh-huh. which is we didn't. The battle in the Expanse episode is we are the Martian ship, we are the superior military force. Look at these people coming at us. We'll be quite calm and put up our shields and just shoot them. It's fine. We can't lose this, and then they do <laughs> lose. This is the mm. opposite, and I think you always yeah. you tend to see the opposite nearer the end of a narrative, which is I don't think we can win. Mm. We are out gunned outmanned outnumbered outplanned. <laughs> oh god uh, yeah. and that is yeah. the, and that is a very common mindset or situation that you will see going into a final battle because it does raise sure. the stakes and it means even though you are fairly sure given narrative probability that our heroes will be victorious it makes you much more interested in how they are going to snatch their victory would you call it freya a climax thank you macy i'm so glad you mentioned that yes i would <laughs> i'm not quite sure how that fits with the didn't think we could win thing but well, you're not quite sure how they're going to reach the victory mm, yes creativity will be required <laughs> creative <laughs> tactics what you can't see dear listeners is that i'm just sitting here rolling my eyes right now <laughs> it's way too hot Listen, for me to be dealing with this, lots of with little this. deaths that's all i'm saying oh my god <laughs> anyway <laughs> no, but but okay, let's talk about dragons. Um, mm. Yes, so this yet again is won by innovative tactics from the protagonist, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. A great craft thing. Um, how can you persuade your reader that, hang on, I'm having a brain thing. One second. Yes, taxonomy. Okay. There are battles as a thing over which your protagonist has agency. Mm -hmm. And then there are battles as settings. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is a battle that Temeraire and Lawrence win. Then we have something like In the Expanse, or I would even kind of argue the K.J. Parker, where Mm -hmm. other people en masse have an effect over the battle, but a lot of it was kind of decided in advance. And it's more of a setting in which things happen. So on the expanse, there is a battle going on, but the real point is the ship is falling apart and we have to run to get to this other little shuttle and escape. They aren't yep. turning the tide of the battle. The main characters do not have agency over it. I was going to say, although, yeah, you're right in that Lawrence uses some good tactics and some new techniques, but something I had forgotten, because it had been a while since I read the book, was that what actually saves them in the end is I would call it a deus ex machina, but it is the emergence of a power or an ability that Temeraire has yes. that has never been there before. It is the equivalent of relief troops at the last minute. Suddenly. Which also happens. Which also happens. But suddenly <laughs> Temeraire can do something that we had no clue was possible. We saw it twice before. Um, not to that extent. But you saw it um, when they were fighting, when they got ambushed on the way down from Scotland. Hello, listeners. I accidentally read the whole of Temeraire. No, this is good. You because I accidentally reading the whole of the Vokosigan. Because really, out of context, I think it seems a little bit sudden. But because Naomi Novik yes. is a good storyteller, I was assuming there had been some foreshadowing. Yeah, there's foreshadowing. But yes, when, when Temeraire was fighting the ambush, um, and also when they were rescuing the dragon who was wounded and falling, I think. Mm-hmm. But th- there were a couple of instances where Temeraire roars and other dragons startle back mm-hmm. in a way that's something more than just 
scary noise. Right. Yep. But anyway, that's a lot of talk about dragons. Shall we go back to talking about battles? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to, to okay. briefly mention that another thing that is possible in this particular series is that the vessel is also a character. Yes. Your vessel oh, yes. can we bleed, love that. your vessel can die, your vessel can talk to you, and we care yeah. about it in a way that oh, we, yes, we don't do. necessarily care if a completely inanimate lump of metal or wood falls apart. You know, yes, it exposes you to the environment, but this is adding a whole new layer of tension and pathos to it because even mm. the enemy dragons are living, sentient you know, beings that can feel pain, even they though they scream. Yeah, and can scream. They scream. And I think that there have been situations and books that have done this effectively with an inanimate object. I'm thinking specifically of Firefly, where uh, the ship's serenity very much is beloved and we feel like she's a character. Um, but it took a much longer time to build that up and, and lead up to it. Whereas with the dragons, we get it immediately. Mm, and I mean, the ship. And we feel, we also feel like other people's dragons are sentient and we feel for them when they die. Whereas with Firefly, we only feel like our own ship is a character and nobody else's ship is really alive. Yeah. So, so very yes, short we on time. On. We only have 15 yes. minutes to get through everything else. Let's go. Okay. Well, we also watched an Alexander the Great documentary. It was awesome. We did. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a that lot was my, of maps that was my and a lot of small it was a lot of maps being moved across the maps. Well, okay. I will make one observation from this, um, which was the morale of your troops matters a lot more than, more than you think. Um, oh, yes. And that a conqueror or anyone at the head of an army only is there by the consent of his troops when he's or her troops when they're far enough from home, which is something yep. that I want to see more of in mm. fiction because I don't think we see enough of it. Like Alexander's conquests were definitely changed at least twice by the rebellion of his troops. Right. Yeah. They'd been away from home for years and years and years. Like, they were tired. They were homesick. They wanted to just go and chill and not be at war well, for a hot second. They also wanted him not to require blasphemy of him, of them by making them also, bow to him as a god. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also that. Could, like Valid. as a documentary, this one was so high level. Like there was nothing mm. about the experience of the individual troop Absolutely. on the ground, except as yeah. it was all just like here are the tactics, here are how things were arranged, here's a bit about what weapons they had, and here's how they went and smashed them and surround them, and and this is how it happened but there were these gems of a story that i might actually give a fuck about in there when they mentioned <laughs> yeah. individuals and as you say like changes in customs and as somebody who does not know a lot about history but has read machiavelli's the prince my main thought mm, as the like course. red kept spreading out over the map was how are you keeping keep that it. empire like mm -hmm. who are you leaving yeah. behind because all the prince is basically about when you have a big empire how do you stop people from nicking bits of it from under you this is one of the reasons that I'm super excited for Kate Elliott's next book, which yes. is meant to be Gender Swapped Alexander the Great in Space. Yes. And it's yes, coming out yes, soon, yes. real soon. So Very soon. That's true. Actually, having seen this, I'm now going to be watching out for yes. potential parallels in space battles. Yes. I want to call out one specific part of this documentary, which is the bit about the Siege of Tyre, which basically the way, if, dear listeners, if you don't know anything about Alexander the Great, my boy walks like rocks up to this island and he's which has a city built on it and he's like i want to make a siege on that city and all his generals are like well it's an island and he was like well fuck that i hate islands make it stop being an island uh and they're like you want us to make it stop being an island he's like yes make it stop being an island and so they fucking just pour a bunch of dirt into <laughs> the channel between the mainland and the island and build a causeway out to the island to make it stop being an island it's and great. that causeway still exists yep. and you can look at it in satellite imagery <sighs> it's very cool fucking Alexander, my, boy. <laughs> my boy my <laughs> boy this was a, this was a taxonomy thought that i had ah. while going through these is that in essence, is your battle a naval battle? Is it an army battle? Or is it an air battle? And as mm. we pointed out, most spaceship battles are very naval in form with some mm. air battle stuff given the number of dimensions yes. we are operating in. I was thinking about Star Wars, which gives us all three, obviously, because it does pew-pew little things maneuvering in space. It does the here is our large cruiser that we have to board. And then it also does battles between troops on the ground. Mm. And all of those are a very different type of battle and give you different opportunities to show different 
things and different scales. I think you're right. Now, I, I was looking at this earlier and I'm like, do I believe that there's that big a difference between a naval battle and an air battle? And I think I do. Hmm. I think you're right. It's about air battle is lots of tiny things moving very fast. Yes. Mm-hmm. With like one person per tiny thing. Yeah, it's like in an air battle, you are never going to be pulling up alongside and boarding someone else. This is why Temeraire is a naval battle. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So if you look at like the Battle of Britain, what you're really seeing is a lot of tiny specks in the air running around trying to avoid each other because there's just so much space and everything's Mm -hmm. moving really fast and it's dark and cloudy and you can't find shit. Right. Even you can't find London, which is fucking impressive. Like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was also trying to figure out whether I think sieges are their own thing. And I kind of do think they're their own thing. I agree that they are their own thing because it's a completely different way of of fighting. Like in a in the three battles that we already listed, like it's a much more immediate kind of like we're dealing with problems right now, right now, right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas with sieges, it ends up being mostly a waiting game. Yeah, because a siege isn't really a battle. It is an arm. It is an army fighting a wall, and then once the wall comes down, <laughs> then you might get some skirmishing on the ground, but maybe no. not much. Okay, I don't quite agree. I think that there's two. There's a, there are many phases of a siege, but that, that's for for our purposes. There are two phases of a siege. There's the waiting around, being bored and making piles of stone and panicking and trying not to have the plague. Yep. Um, and then there's the attacking. Right, so there's there are battle pieces of the siege where, like Freya says, it's an army attacking a wall, or a moat, or a causeway, or whatever you're sieging, and then there's the boring wait around stuff. But I think that even the bits that are battles, like even once you break through the gate and are running around an enemy city full of civilians, that's fundamentally different from a pitched battle on a plane. Well, that's true, yes. and the, the difference there is who is involved. Like you were yeah. talking about, you know, holding a causeway, holding a pass. That's something that an army might do against another army. But the fundamental difference with a siege is once the thing has been taken or come down, suddenly the people who are involved and are on the sticky end are technically not soldiers. Can we talk about my favorite Lyman-esque siege winning strategy thing? Yes. Misothere. Oh yes, with the yeah. the ships, uh, yeah. uh, the ships being on fire. I'm like, yes. now that I have listened to half a Lymond book, I'm like, that was very Lymond. It was very Lymond. Yeah, in which yes, Emir takes a city by charging in with like not enough people at all, and then tricks their command structure into thinking he has reinforcements coming by setting fire to all of the ships in the harbor, so they can't see he doesn't. Yep. Yep. It's and also great. like setting strategic fires so it looks like he has overrun the entire city when in fact he has set like three fires. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. That's true. And yes. I think we get a lot of satisfaction out of that because it's competence porn. Yes. Like it's it's very much about somebody using their brain rather than just I will hit a lot of people and stab a lot of people until my numbers are the ones who are left standing. You know, the kind of stories that we enjoy reading and the kind of stories that we enjoy telling are ones where people, someone is thinking their way around a problem, like Miles Volkosigan, right, rather yep. than just, now Alexander army smash. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, Alexander was generally thinking too. True. Yeah. But yeah, that was more. Smart. If you want to know more about sieges, dear listeners, KJ Parker has a wonderful essay, very short, called "On Sieges," which <laughs> is exactly okay. what it says on the tin. Yeah, I wanted to very briefly mention again an interaction between world building and battles, mm, because yes. in mm. fantasy, especially, if you've got magic, you need to decide how magic is going to be used yes. or constrained in yes. a battle. Like, can your magicians literally just turn and? disintegrate people with a gesture of their arm can they take out people can they set an entire troop on fire what can they actually do and if you've set up your magic such that people have these immense powers how do you make a battle interesting so there's a great example of this in the last episode of the witcher um which has low on spoilers because we're trying to get freya to watch it um (laughs) which has a band of sorceresses defending basically a siege And they do go out and use their individual magic to fight magic users on the other side. And it's very individualistic. But the way that you keep the battle from being boring is that you have to have the magic users on both sides. Yes. Maybe not Mm. of the same strength, but you either have to have 
magic users or a counter to your magic users like you would in fuck the video game bioware the chantry oh uh dragon dragon age inquisition dragon age not dragon age inquisition just the the whole where they have a counter to the mages yes but yes i think you have to make it an arms race in that yes this side has this particular type of magic but the other side has this thing that they have developed to defend against that type of magic or else it literally just becomes why hasn't gandalf just killed everyone with his stuff Why did right. you ride like, the eagles into Mordor? <laughs> it basically just, and I think that that tracks for pretty much any battle that you're writing. Like it's mm. going to be more interesting if people have about the same level of tools on both sides. Because if one person has like fucking bombs and the other side doesn't, then you can just obliterate them and call it a day. Well, and there's not stakes to it. Well, there's not suspense. No, I mean. Not quite, because there's, if you look at the real world, um, there are lots of examples of situations with vast technological discrepancy between the sides where tactics have played a lot of part, particularly guerrilla tactics. Um, And you can also get into like the morality of using the larger weapons. Um, Yeah. uh, So, so there are ways to do it, but I agree that like, if you want, if you want to be doing a pitched battle, there has to be a reason for both sides to have some expectation that they could lose. I still am gonna. I still am gonna argue though that in that case, that if you are on the side that has bigger tools, I think that it's not as suspenseful. Like if your protagonist is on the weaker side, then that's automatically suspense, right? Because they have to use their brains to solve the problem, which is always going to be relatable from a character building. I mean, I'm looking at like Germany going into Russia on the eve of winter where the Russians Mm. were armed with basically stones and the Germans still lost. (laughs) Stones and the climate. Stones and the climate. Stones and the climate. So that's what I... The environment. Well, (laughs) right. I'm like, uh, it's nothing is... You can do anything. Yeah. You can do anything. That's true. <laughs> but I, I would agree with what Alex said and what, from what you said about the morality of large weapons is mm. that it is going to be much, much more common to see in fiction that the people we are meant to be rooting for are the ones who do not have the giant the world-killing weapon. They are the underdogs. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't got the enormous armies because, again, like in the Temeraire scene, that creates more suspense about how they're going to be victorious and also more satisfying storytelling because – unless you do have a deus ex machina of an enormous weapon of your own, it is going to be ingenuity and characters and tactics that allows the victory to happen. And that is more satisfying for a reader. That's fair. But I maintain yeah. that, the, that Machiavelli's The Prince shows that keeping the power that you have is not always that simple and not always achieved just from power. Mm. Yeah, pe- yes. people are important. <laughs> Did we want to talk a little bit about some of the subgenres that have expectations of battles? So I think military sci-fi is probably <laughs> one of the most obvious ones. It's yes. got military in the name. You can do military <laughs> science fiction where the military is setting where you don't have large battles, but I can't imagine it's enormously common. Um, I, People I've read... know what they're reading for. People know what they're reading for. I read Starship Troopers quite some time ago and remember enjoying it a lot more than I expected to for, you know, a a science fiction novel of that age because I hadn't really read a lot of military stuff and it really does focus on one individual person's experience Mm. and some of that stuff to do with tactics and it gives you big picture battle but most of it is really individualized and Mm. I think that's how you engage people unless you're the kind of person who really likes watching documentaries where tiny tokens march around maps i am freya i okay am. i know you are but i i, I, just I have for fun been watching a like six-part documentary on the rise of the ottoman empire and so far we have spent three episodes on Suleiman's siege of Constantinople and it's been great. Mm-hmm. I've been Amazing. having so much fun. <laughs> Please well, send me that documentary, Mason. All right. Well, if you want a good <laughs> military science fiction story, I recommend watching Edge of Tomorrow, uh, yeah. a movie with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. Absolutely. I also great. I also really enjoyed uh, Ender's Game mm. um, because I got a really, it's also very closely focused on a single individual kind of like learning and also then confronting like the morality of, of battle. And um, it has this amazing sense of like the environment and like mm-hmm. the three dimensionality of fighting in space because Ender kind of goes into this anti-grav training session and 
it's fucking with his brain because yeah, things are happening both down. all around him and also up and down and it starts working for him when he reclassifies for himself what he considers down to be. Yes. So, great stuff. But I will say all I maintain that military science fiction is basically just age of sale. Like yeah. I am eternally amused basically, yeah. by the Honor Harrington series, which is literally Horatio Hornblower gender swap in space. I need to read that because that sounds like my shit. She has a psychic cat. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told me that part. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, there's like queen and country stuff as well. I'm just like, this is transparent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's you know big epic fantasy. Mm. I think I read quite a bit of Raymond E. Feist when I was oh, yes. a, young, a young teen, and he 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 really likes Castles. his battle scenes. I remember like one yeah. full book series that I was like. This is getting quite exhausting. Like it was just, it was really <laughs> focusing on this war and each book had a few different battles in it. And then there'd be these oh, lovely relieving scenes where people would go back home and have a conversation about merchants. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Thank God. You read, you read <laughs> the, 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 the Mara of the Akoma trilogy too, right, Freya? Yes, that had a much better balance between character stuff and battle stuff. Because some of the battles were like spy shit and like running around in corridors with poison daggers. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just more the... And the initial Magician trilogy by Feist, I think, had a good balance as well, even though it was Mm. technically set during a war. It's just some of the later series that was set in that same world and during that same conflict got very battle-y in a very exhausting way. And I maintain that there is a subset of young adult genre fiction that has an expectation of battles. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that a lot of the dystopian ones in particular have expectations Mm -hmm. of regime-ending battles. Uh, Hunger Games kind of set this up. Mm. But even if you go earlier, like, his Dark Materials, I seem to remember, had, like, the battles of the angels. You didn't really see it in detail, but it was kind of, like, happening up there. I I agree agree that YA does, but I think because of the type of story that's being told in the dystopian YA that's in the Hunger Games model, that means that the kind of fighting you're going to see is usually guerrilla tactics slash revolutionary battle. Which... Again, is an interesting way to do it. I mean, sometimes you do get to pitched battle as well. But yeah, there's lots of different ways to do this. And we are very short on time. But I thought I would ask briefly if any of you had a favorite fanfic battle. I know that mine, I'll say this to give you time to think a little bit. Um, one of my favorites was from a Vorkosigan fanfic, which is mm, yes. a deeper season. Uh, they have a great like infiltrating the science ministry i guess it's more spy hijinks than battle but it becomes pretty much a pitched battle by the end because miles yeah it's it's a small scale battle but i think i would consider it a a battle and i think that miles would have considered (laughs) it a battle as well (laughs) uh and then we mentioned the the uh, siege in misothera yes um Freya, any others that you want to mention? No, possibly if you gave me some time and like yeah. time to go through my AO3 history, I might find something. But I don't think I, meet, I read many things at the moment that lend themselves to battles. Yeah, I, I think then I will mention a couple more fics because I do want us to have a few fics in the episode. Sure, go ahead. Um, I will mention Diplomatic Relations by Maldoror, which is a Naruto fanfic and has lots of ninja battles in it including one in which they are kind of battling a sandstorm um, and another one in which a bunch of enemy ninjas try to kidnap the poisoned strongest ninja in the desert uh, and it goes badly for them. Um, And also, there was another one I was thinking of. Yes, my favourite longest fanfic in the world, um, the Mm -hmm. 3.6 million word long uh, Mm -hmm. lightning Mm -hmm. in the wave arc. Oh god, it's been a while since we've mentioned that, hasn't it? <laughs> well, it has some really great battles in it with some really inventive uses of magic and like dark rituals and really mm. spooky bullshit, and it that was super fun. Uh, nice, because that was nice, one of nice. the one of the author's real strengths um, for that series was coming up with different magics and working them into the world building. Yeah. So yeah, fanfic Fantastic. can definitely do really cool things with battles too. Yes, I think especially with world building, like taking mm-hmm. a, a thinner piece of world building than, that's provided by the canon and then building more on it. Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. It ha- I had a good time with this episode. I hope that you did as well. Uh, have a good night. And no stabbing. And no stabbing.
everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Maybe you can have a little stabbing as a treat. I'm going to share an additional point for this episode, which is the Romans invented tanks. It's just that they were on foot and made out of men carrying big shields and doing turtle formations. The Mongols invented fighter jets. It's just that they were on horseback and had stirrups. Stirrups completely revolutionized medieval warfare, you know, because they allow you to turn around and shoot arrows backwards off your horse and whiz around being deadly in 360 degrees. And eventually it made it possible for knights wearing big coats of armor to do their thing and be tanks again. It always comes back to tanks, doesn't it? Anyway, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On our next episode, two weeks hence, on July 15th, we are discussing the unbearableness of J.K. Rowling as a person and the power of fanfic to reclaim and transform problematic canons. It's a one tentpole deep dive on the fic Transfigurations by Resonant. So if you have some friends who might enjoy that discussion, give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com and at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, which is also at serpentcast. In place of a compliment, I'm going to give you a joke that I made up my own self out of my own head. Are you ready? How did the hipster conquer his empire? Hmm? He invaded Russia before it was cool. Shazam!